It's good to see everyone here again today. We're glad to have some visitors from out of town. We're glad you're here with us. And some visitors from in town. So we're glad everyone's here. I repeat again, the sign on the outside of the door says something that is true here at Lindsley Avenue, which is that everyone is welcome. So we're glad you're here. I hope you will come back and be with us again each and every opportunity that you have. Uh, this morning, we're going to have some thoughts looking at a thread, a thread of thought that runs through the book of Titus. We're going to be following the same uh, theme, the same thread of Paul's thought in the book of Titus through several verses. And that theme is whether we are fit or unfit truly for God's service, fit or unfit. Now, uh, I will neither confirm nor deny questions that have been raised about whether that is actually my arm shown in the picture. We're going to simply leave that as something people wonder about, but you can make your own conclusions, but fit or unfit. So follow along with me here this morning in the book of Titus. Starting off back in chapter 1, again, we're going to flow through, and the idea will be to develop the thought as we look through some verses. Starting Titus 1, verses 7 through 9. For an overseer must be able to give instruction and sound doctrine, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. An overseer or an elder must be able to convict the opponents of the faith, the opponents of truth. The original word means to rebuke someone in such a way that they have to admit that they are mistaken. That's not the way our arguments tend to go today. Think of discussions that if you ever are unfortunate enough to get into one about politics, no one's mind is ever going to really be changed for anything related to that. That's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about arguing for arguing's sake. An overseer must be able to give instruction and sound doctrine, explain it well enough, clearly enough, that he is convincing someone that they are in fact mistaken. Aristotle said of that word that it means to prove that things cannot be otherwise than have been stated. There's no room for doubt that the original thought somebody had is just flat out wrong. They have agreed with you. <laughs> That's what they, the word means when it comes to convicting someone, rebuking someone who contradicts sound doctrine. Christian rebuke means a whole lot more than simply flinging angry or condemning words at somebody. You know, you're never going to convince somebody that a certain behavior is wrong or a certain position is wrong by holding up signs outside of a business or a church or an athletic event saying that people that do X, Y, or Z are going to hell. You know, God has, first of all, God is the one who's going to be the judge. Behaviors may in fact be sinful behaviors that God really does not want anyone to be engaging in. But if you're trying to convince someone that they're in a the place that they need to leave, that they're engaging in behaviors they need to leave, that is not what Christian rebuke is really all about. Not at all. It means speaking in such a way that someone who is in error with some sort of a position or belief or behavior sees that error and accepts the truth. That's what an overseer needs to be doing. Now, what does that have to do with fit or unfit? We'll take a look. 
continuing on. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers. These people profess to know God. They say they know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient. And here's the key point we want to follow through with. They are unfit for any good work. So these are people who say, I know God, but by their behavior show that they really, truly don't. And even though they say they know God by their behaviors, Paul says they have made themselves unfit for any good work. The word used here for unfit describes a counterfeit coin, which is hollow or less weight. You know, imagine a gold coin it's supposed to be one ounce, but it's actually a tenth of an ounce. That's unfit. A cowardly soldier who fails in the hour of battle. Run away, run away, right? A rejected candidate for office. When you have two people running for a political office, basically the electorate has said by whoever gets the most votes or whatever is required to be elected, that the person who does not get the office was judged to be the least the less fit of the two. A man that citizens simply regarded as useless back in the day, or a stone that the builders rejected. We're trying to build something. This is going to be unfit for the purpose that we have in mind. We won't use that stone in the building project that we're undertaking. The ultimate test of life is usefulness. If our influence is always toward that which is unclean, it is of no use to God or neighbor. Now, that's kind of a still a beginning point of what I want to talk about this morning, but that's really important. The ultimate test of my life, the ultimate test of your life, is whether we, you and I, are useful to God and our neighbors. Nowhere does it say that you're useful to yourself. Am I fit? Am I developed properly where I can be of use to God and seeing that God's work is being done? Or that I can be useful and fit for whether I can help my neighbor? That's really the ultimate test of life. Not how much money you have, not what you did here and there or anything else, but whether I have developed myself, become fit enough to be of use to my God and my neighbor. Picking up over in chapter 2, remember we're following that thought through the whole book of Titus this morning. Chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. The first thing which any young person must aim to, to get is self-mastery, self-control. You cannot serve others until you've mastered yourself, because you're going to be serving yourself until you get some self-control. Proverbs 16, 32 says, He who rules his spirit is greater than he who takes his city. It's hard to get self-control. It's hard to control yourself. It's hard to quit thinking of what I want 
so that I can think more of what God wants and what my neighbor needs. We must be self-controlled. We look at our society today. Who talks about that? Who talks about being self-controlled? No one does. It's always you know, somebody else's fault. Well, actually, it's my fault for what I do or don't do. I, we all need to aim at self-control. And notice again, young men are to be a model of good works. There's no age requirement that you can only be a model of good works. You can only become fit for good works by age 30 or age 40 or age 50. And I would strongly argue that young women are to be a model of good works as well. It's addressed to young men right here. But young women need to be involved in good works and to be a model showing what it takes to be a true uh, child of God. Then we get to Titus 2, 11 through 14. Well, to me, it's one of my favorite verses in the entire Bible. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. God's grace, his unmerited, undeserved favor, his mercy, has appeared unto everyone and brings salvation. Note that that does not mean universal salvation. God's grace has not appeared saying everybody's in. Much of the rest of the Bible wouldn't make much sense if that's what this verse was trying to teach us. That's not what this verse in its context teaches us. God's grace has been shown to everyone and salvation is now available to everyone. We all have the opportunity to come to God because God's grace is now open to everyone. Where in the past, it had been focused on the Jewish people. Now it's available to everyone, you and me, you and me. But look what the verse says in its context, Titus 2, 11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us or teaching us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age. God's grace that has appeared, giving us the opportunity for salvation, requires some changes in you and me. It requires a response. And part of that response to the grace of God that's here and allows me to be saved and become a member of his family, teaches me, trains me, that I need to turn away from ungodliness and worldly passions and to live, there's that phrase again, self-controlled lives. The upright and godly people in the present age. That was written 2,000 plus or minus years ago. It's every bit as true today. This grace trains us. It actually means schools us. I remember, boy, you were really schooled, right? We say that when somebody gets... Uh, whooped up in a fight or some kind of that. And boy, he really schooled him. Well, God's grace is going to school us to teach us, perhaps sometimes the hard way, like getting whooped in a fight. It's going to school us because it may take a hard knock upside the head, so to speak, to help us realize we need to turn away from ungodliness and turn toward God. Again, notice the emphasis on self-control. 
without self-control, without keeping my mouth shut, without keeping my hands to myself and my mind in place, without the ability to stay seated, even if being provoked, I can't take steps toward any of this that we're talking about. Self-control is the prerequisite in many ways for much of what is to come from you and me. Look at 2 Peter 3.11. Since all these things are thus about to be destroyed, what sort of people ought you to be? Why do I need to live a self-controlled life? Why do I need to turn away from ungodliness and evil passions and to live a sober, serious, godly life in the here and now? Because all of that stuff that has my attention over in the world that's sinful is going away. Every bit of it, all of the partying that happens just a few blocks from here is going to eventually disappear. What's going to matter then? The only thing that's going to matter then is whether I have accepted this grace of God that's freely available and have I become the kind of person, have I been working to become the kind of person God wants me to be. That's it. What kind of people should you and I be? Continuing again in Titus 2, 11 through 14. I'm going to read it again because I like it so much. The grace of God has appeared training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, doing what? Waiting for our blessed hope. For the, the appearing of the glory of the great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself the people for his own possession. You know, we often say John 3.16 is the gospel message in miniature. God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting or eternal life. This is the gospel in just a few more words in many ways. Because the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation. And when we take hold of that grace, it teaches us to change our lives and wait for the blessed hope that is coming. We need to make sure we hold on to that hope. We remember that hope. Because so often our world seems designed to drain hope away and leave us with Jesus can purify us until we are fit to be a special people for God. Look at the very end of that passage. Jesus Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. You and I need some purification. You know, I travel in countries where I really would not drink the water unless I knew it was purified. There's no telling what's in it. It has a lot of impurities, a lot of things floating around in it that will not do me any good if I happen to take a sip of it. And it's a terrifying thought when you have just taken a sip of something and you're like, oops, I forgot. And you immediately look for your medicines to head off something that may be on the way. Well, you and I have impurities in us. And for us to be able to be in the presence of God and to be truly his people, we need to be purified. Jesus is the one who can purify us, cleanse us, change us so that we can truly become a people 
for his own possession, a peculiar people. The word people for his own possession comes from an idea, a word of after a battle, the spoils that would be taken uh, for the people who have engaged in the battle or a campaign where they conquered the city or the country. And the king was able to say, I know we just took all this stuff, but look, as the king, this stuff is for me. This stuff is especially for me. Well, the king is Jesus himself. And he looks at you and me with such love and such um, true desire that he wants us to be just for him. Just as the king might take the best jewels, the king might take the shiniest gold or the best of the spoils, Jesus is pulling us aside to him saying, these are mine. These are mine, but he has to purify us first. Through the work of Jesus Christ, the Christian becomes fit to be the special possession of God. Jesus is the one purifying us. Look at this again. To purify for himself at the end of the passage a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Who are zealous for good works. Jesus did all that to have a people who were zealous intently interested in, seeking with a strong desire, good works. The word is the whole idea of boiling water. As God's people, we should be on fire to be doing good. We shouldn't have to be drug along resisting. I was thinking of the donkey, right? Trying to pull the donkey and won't move. That cannot describe us when it comes to good works. We need to be, you know, almost hyper. Think of, you know, you've seen, you've seen the teenagers. Yeah, where are we going? Where are we going? We're going to Disneyland. Where are we going? Where are we going? That should be us. In terms of looking for opportunities to serve people and to do good, not reluctant, not grudgingly, not okay, but what can I do next? That's what Jesus is purifying us for. Once we have turned away from living for ourselves, we should be on fire, as it were, not only to live for God, but to help and love other people. Look over in chapter 3. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Remind who? Those that Titus has preaching and teaching. Remind all these people he's been talking to. Titus continued to remind these people all of these things. You know, I was having to try to think if I even knew who the mayor was in Nashville, but suppose I, I, I think I, it came to mind as I was thinking this, but the mayor, the governor, the president, the congressman, the senator, People who are rulers and authorities. What does Paul tell Titus to remind those he's teaching? To be submissive to rulers and authorities. You know, we in America have this thing, we're more likely to try to throw a tomato at somebody. That shouldn't describe a Christian. Well, does it say be submissive to rulers and authorities that you agree with? Does it say be submissive and, uh, and, uh, to rulers and authorities who 
past things that you are. Remember, we're talking Caesar. We're talking a despot. We're talking an absolute ruler with the power of life or death at the snap of a finger. And he told these people to be submissive in response uh, to these rulers and people in positions of authority. Surely, surely I can do that today. Do not speak evil of anyone. But what about these people I really don't like? Can I speak evil about them to avoid quarreling? Takes two to quarrel. Takes two to argue, right? Try walking away. Rarely is there something worth what can come out when people get fired up and their mouths are moving. And to be gentle and show perfect courtesy toward all people. Very good idea. The good citizen is law-abiding and recognizes that unless the laws are kept, life becomes chaos. I mean, sure, we, I think we, many of us may want few laws, but the world would be a vastly different place with no laws at all. We give a proper respect to those who are in authority and carry out whatever commands are given, subject to not violating something God has told us. That's the way it needs to be. Christianity does not insist that we cease to be an individual. We are different. We all have our thoughts and opinions that are different, but we have to remember that we are part of the group. We're part of the community. We're, we're fellow citizens with people in our community, and we are people who are part of the family of God. I'm an individual, but I'm part of a group too. And sometimes the individual does things for the good of the good citizen is active in service, ready for every good work. If you think about today, I've heard, I've heard this said, so I've incorporated it here. The characteristic modern disease is boredom. I don't have anything to do. Maybe that's why I will play video games for eight hours a day. Maybe that's why I will endlessly, and some of us have done this, scroll through looking at nutty videos that people have put up. I don't know the people. I'll never see them again. I won't remember what the video showed 10 seconds after I scrolled past it. But you look up and time has just disappeared because we're bored. The characteristic problem of our age in many ways is boredom. And boredom comes in some ways because of selfishness. If I'm bored, it's because perhaps I haven't recognized I need to look for some way to help somebody. I, you know how I said that at first thing? I am bored. And that's not right. How can it be in this universe that I am bored? The expression I'm bored gives away, in some ways, the root cause of the problem. So long as we live on the principle of why should I do it, let somebody else do it, we're going to be living in a, as a bored kind of person. Don't wait for somebody else to do something. If you see something, do it. If you see something that needs to be done, that's a good work to help somebody, do it. You'll find you have a whole lot less time, I think, to be bored. The interest of life for a Christian really has to lie in service. It really does. It has to lie in service. Look at verses 4 through 7. 
But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, remember we talked about the grace of God that brings salvation that appeared back in Titus 2 just a moment ago. He says a similar thought here in Titus 3. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. I did not save myself. You, no matter what you've done or did, did not save yourself. He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, he saved us. How did he save us? What does Titus say? By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Never think you're saved by good works. We need to be busy about doing good works. But there's not some tally sheet that if I've got enough check marks on it, God's going to let me in as long as I have enough on that side of the ledger. We are saved by the grace and mercy of God, period. Nothing you or I can do will ever save us. We are saved by God. How does he save us? Paul says to Titus, according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. By the renewing I have as an individual, by God's Spirit living within me, not the spirit of the world, not the spirit I might have of wanting to do what I'm wanting to do, I want to do, but by the change that comes in me when I become a member of God's family, by, as Paul says, don't you know the spirit of God dwells within you? When God's spirit is dwelling within me, it's got to make a change in me. When does that happen? The Bible's very consistent in pointing out that people are referred to as saved after they've had that washing of regeneration, which we do in this large pool right behind me here. God's the one doing the saving, not the one that puts somebody under, not you in saying, put me under. By his mercy, he saved us. How? By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. The love and grace of God are gifts which no one could ever earn or could ever earn, ever. God offers his love to us simply because he's got that great love for us. Why? I have no idea. I don't have any idea why he loves me, why he loves you. I cannot explain that. A Christian can think never of what they've earned, but only of what God has given because of that, our lives need to be involved in service of love toward God and love for our neighbor because of humble gratitude. God did something for me I could never have fixed by myself. I was lost with no hope. Grace of God appeared, bringing salvation. By his mercy, he saved us. I could never have done it myself. How can I live any other way other than being thankful and grateful each and every day. Verse 8, I want you to insist, this is after he's talked about people who have seen the grace of God appearing, who have recognized he saved us, who have been washed in the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Then look what he says in verse 8, I want you to insist that those who have believed in God be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and 
unprofitable for people. You and I, those of us who have believed in God, Paul says the Titus need to be careful to devote ourselves to good works because we can't say, well, God did it. Great. I can go be bored on my, on my couch for the next month. We need to be grateful and that should generate the desire to devote ourselves to love God and help other people. The word for devoting, the word devote themselves to good works right there, means to stand in front of and was used for the shopkeeper, hawking their wares and pointing at things. You know, you've, you've probably walked past somebody, hey, come take a look at what I've got today. That's how intensely interested we need to be in looking for good works. We need to devote ourselves to things which are good and helpful to people. So look at the difference. Look at the difference right here. Back in chapter 1, verses 7 through 9, Paul had said to Titus that elders, overseers needed to convict people who were talking, speaking against the truth. For there are many who profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. These are detestable, disobedient, and they are unfit for every good work. Look at chapter 3, verse 14. Let our people learn to devote themselves to good work so as to come cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. Paul says Christians should practice good deeds and be independent so as to be able to help others who are in need. Wonderful, wonderful advice for us. So my question this morning is, if you're a member of God's family, are we fit or unfit for good works? Do I recognize with gratitude what God has done for me? And because of that, I am on fire looking for ways to do things in the service of God and do things in service to my neighbor. Or am I bored? One of those responses would suggest that we may be unfit. New Year's, everybody wants to get fit, right? Remember the arm? What does our arm look like in terms of service for God? Does it look like the Schwarzenegger kind of picture that was there on the screen, or does it look weaker? If you are not yet a member of God's family, we need to be devoted to God so that we can become fit for His service. Grace of God has appeared. It has been brought to each of us as an opportunity. And I want to beg anyone today that needs to take hold of it right 